0: Well, at this time, uh, I thought it would be appropriate for us to uh, pause in our study in the book of Acts and uh, do something that might be more appropriate for just the level of the crisis that we're going through and all the issues that uh, we're facing with the coronavirus. So I'd like to uh, ask you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 91. Because what I'd like to do this morning is just to kind of share where my thoughts have been uh, going the last uh, week or so. Some of the Scriptures that have just providentially come up in my Bible reading that I think would be very uh, beneficial for us to consider together this morning. So Psalm 91 is where we'd like to begin. And I'd like to uh, work through this uh, Psalm briefly. And then I'd like for us to uh, consider it in light of just uh, trusting God in, in the days of the coronavirus. And look at Psalm 91 and then look at uh, a passage in Proverbs regarding preparation for the battle, which I think is very uh, apropos for what we're going through. And then to conclude with a third set of verses just dealing with uh, the various economic and financial hardships that are being created because of the virus that we're dealing with. So those are kind of my three points I'd like to uh, work uh, with you on uh, together this morning. So Psalm 91, I'd like to begin by reading the entire psalm and then uh, focus on one major issue of how in the world do we interpret it in light of what's going on today. Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and My fortress, My God in whom I trust. For it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions and... Under His wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For He will give His angels charge concerning you, to guard you in all your ways. He will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. And again, may God bless the reading of his word. Psalm 91 is one of those amazing psalms that just lays out the blessings of God that come upon those who trust in the Lord. Those who make the Lord their refuge. Those who make the Lord their dwelling place are given these promises that appear to be a total victory over all enemies and all pestilence and all terrors or evils or plagues. And when you look at uh, the emphasis of this particular psalm, some of these promises seem uh, quite amazing indeed. If you look again at verse 3. I think I have that up. For it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in the darkness or destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right side, but it shall not approach you. No evil will befall you. Nor will any plague come near your tent. With a long life I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. And the, and the interpretive issue with this psalm is, is this really true to life? Do God's people never suffer from pestilence? Or do they never uh, get struck with arrows? Or do they ever die young? Or do they ever succumb to a plague? And do they ever have evil that befalls us? And of course, the Psalms itself and so many of other Scriptures and even our own experience would tell us We're not sure how to interpret this because our experience seems to be quite different. A few years ago, I read an article by John Piper on this psalm wrestling with how in the world do we understand it? How do we interpret it in light of the reality that oftentimes these great evils and pestilence and and all of these plagues sometimes do affect the church. They do affect God's people. So how would we answer this? How do we explain Psalm 91 and the, the bold promises that seem to appear here? Well, again, uh, John Piper suggests there are three different ways you could interpret this uh, psalm. You could say on the one hand that the psalmist is really just out of touch with reality. He really doesn't know what he's talking about. He's saying things, he's making promises, but he just, they're just not true. And he missed the mark badly. Well, of course, we can reject that option because this is the inspired Word of God. So that certainly is not the right answer. Others will say, well, this psalm is true only if you have enough faith. And so they say, if your faith is strong enough, if it's big enough, then you ought to be able to stand in the midst of all these plagues and enemies and and be totally and completely protected. And if you're not, it's because your faith is too weak. Kind of like some of the charismatic uh, theologies that's out there. It's saying that basically the second view is that if you, if you uh, read the psalm and if, if your faith is again large enough to believe these promises, then basically you are bulletproof and bombproof. And they use it almost kind of like a magic charm and sadly it gives a false sense of security. And we reject this view too. I don't think that's the proper way to interpret Psalm 91. I think the best way is to understand that the psalmist has probably just experienced some miraculous intervention and deliverance by God. We don't know exactly what it is, but I mean all of these things that are listed in the psalm could have been things he's wrestled with that have come near to him. And by God's, providence and miraculous grace he has been delivered. So he's writing this psalm to celebrate the joy of God's intervention, of God's deliverance, of God's protection in the midst of great evil and calamities and pestilence. But it is not intended to be an absolute promise or guarantee of divine protection and deliverance for all believers at all times. In other words, he is celebrating what God has done for him. And so he just gushes out with this this great praise of God that has done these marvelous things in protecting him. But it's not designed by the Spirit of God, although when you read it, it might at first superficial reading appear to be so. It's not designed to be an an ironclad guarantee that you will always be protected, that you'll never get sick, that you'll never endure suffering and hardships in this life, and I really think that is the better way to understand this particular psalm. Many of the promises in Scripture are always contingent upon the overriding providence of God. So, in reading of these great uh, promises in this passage, uh, we can see that we can. It's designed to encourage our faith that. We worship a God who has the power to intervene and rescue and deliver His people from all of these attacks. But we must also understand that these are limited by God's wise providence. That it's not an absolute promise and guarantee. But God does indeed protect His people. He does indeed control the flight of arrows. The movement of deadly pestilence. But again... This is not a rock-solid promise that all believers at all times will be protected and will never get sick, will never die, will never succumb to some of the problems that He has been delivered from uh, in this psalm. Sadly, the Scriptures are clear, and our experience would also echo the truth that there are times when believers fall by the piercing of the arrow, There are times when believers succumb to deadly diseases who die young in life. And the promises of this psalm cannot be universally applied to all believers at all times. It was not intended to be that. This is the expression of an exuberant faith of a man who experienced God's grace in a way that may have been miraculous, but he's celebrating it and his faith is just setting forth these promises that this is what God has done and can do. But there are always exceptions in our individual experience. God's providence restricts them according to His wisdom. For example, in verse 16, there is the promise of a long life that God will satisfy those who know Him and draw near to Him. But are there not many godly young who die? David Brainerd, for example, that godly young man, that close friend of Jonathan Edwards, who was a missionary to the Native Americans, died in 1747 of tuberculosis at the age of 29. Did Psalm 91 not apply to him? We find also Jim Elliot, who ministered to the Hurani people of Ecuador. He was killed by the flight of arrows in 1956 and died at the age of 28. How do you interpret that in light of Psalm 91? Godly young man. How about Robert Murray McShane, that exceptional godly minister of the Church of Scotland who died in the epidemic of typhus in the year 1843 Again, at the tender age of 29. Psalm 91 is not designed to give us a a carte blanche guarantee that we will never suffer. That we will never die young. That we will never succumb to these diseases. But it's designed to encourage us that we worship a God who is able to miraculously intervene. A God who can rescue us and protect us so that though 10,000 fall on our right, yet we will not fall. God can do that. But it's not a guaranteed promise that He always will. His providence will control when and how He brings about the fulfillment of these great promises. God's people have suffered throughout the history of the church. And we're not always rescued like Daniel in the lion's den. Miraculous intervention that would fit right in with Psalm 91. And yet, what about that young woman, Vibia Perpetua? That young woman in the year 200 who was killed by wild beasts in the Colosseum at the age of 20. Daniel was protected in the lion's den, but she was a godly young woman and she was not. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego protected in the furnace of fire miraculously by God? But how about all the believers in the first century that were burned alive in Nero's gardens to light them up with their bodies aflame? God's providence determines when and how He sends His miraculous intervention and deliverance. Sometimes we experience The victory of faith. Other times we experience the struggles of defeat and yes, even death. And I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 11 that I think in many ways captures the very struggle that we have in interpreting Psalm 91. For example, we read in Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 33, the, the victory of faith. This is what, what we would compare to be similar to what we read in Psalm 91. The victory of faith. The conquering grace of faith by the providence of God. But look at what we read in verse 33. Who by faith conquered kingdoms and performed acts of righteousness and obtained promises and shut the mouths of lions. It quenched the power of fire and escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured. Well, that's going into that next section. But others did not receive the victory of the ones just listed. No, there are others who have been tortured as we read that. Oops. Thank you. We read on in this particular passage that others were tortured not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. You see, there's no other way to conclude this than in the providence of God determines upon whom and when and how much His grace gives. Some experience the victory of faith. Others die in faith and they suffer in faith and they are persecuted in faith. But it's God who rules. It's God who determines. So that the Psalms tell us repeatedly that God's people will have their sufferings. And yes, the angel of the Lord encamps around the saints of God and rescues them from all their troubles. But again, that promise is tempered by the providence of God beautiful promise to encourage us in our struggles that God can intervene, that God can rescue, that God can deliver. But ultimately, it is subject to His wise providence. It's not a guarantee promise. It wasn't intended to be that. And the scriptures would not conclude that it is. Some of God's sheep do get slaughtered and faith does not dress us in a spiritual kevlar that prevents all of the bullets from the enemy from penetrating and yet we know that God does give us the victory in the end we do know that God's grace will cause us to persevere whether it's a victory of of faith or the defeat in faith in the struggle in faith that ultimately God will give us the victory in Christ Jesus. He will cause us to persevere. He will protect us spiritually to the end so that our faith will not fail and we'll arrive safe in His presence. So ultimately, we do get the victory. But again, these passages are not designed to tell us we're going to get the victory and it's full in this life. God's providence may determine otherwise. Derek Kidner summarizes the message of the psalm when he says that this psalm is a statement of exact and sweeping providence, not a charm against adversity. What it does assure us is that nothing can touch God's servant but by God's leave or by God's will. So the psalm has much to encourage our faith, but it's not designed to make us do something foolish in the name of faith. By the way, this is how Satan interpreted Psalm 91 when he tempted our Lord in the wilderness. You remember that passage? We read that, uh, remember when our Lord was uh, out in the wilderness and He's being tempted three times by Satan? Satan quoted Psalm 91 to try to distort the meaning, to give Jesus a false sense of security and a false thinking that this was a guarantee that he was protected by God no matter what he did. And obviously this shows how Satan can subtly distort Scripture to his own end. Now we're told in uh, Matthew chapter 4 that Satan took Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple, verse 5. And this is probably a reference to the southeast corner of the temple mount. So he took Him up to the top of the wall in the highest point of the temple area. On the top of the wall that was at the end of Herod's royal portico overhanging the Kidron Valley so that it dropped down about forty four hundred and fifty feet. That would be like standing on the ledge of a building forty five feet forty-five stories tall. And Satan took Jesus there, right on the edge of it. So if you're if you have a fear of heights, this would be terrorizing to you. And he said to him, If you're the Son of God, verse six. Throw yourself down, for it is written, and now he's quoting Psalm 91, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now what is Satan doing? Satan is using Psalm 91 to try to make it as an absolute promise that God's people who trust in the Lord can be guaranteed of God's deliverance and God's protection at all times. I mean, you read the psalm and you can almost see it in there. But obviously that's not what it's intended, but that's how Satan is interpreting it because what he wants to try to do is to tempt Jesus in two ways. He wants him, number one, to rely on the miraculous intervention of God to prove his faithfulness to his promise. Jesus, cast yourself down. Hasn't the Father promised to you in Psalm 91 that you will not be hurt, your foot will not be struck against a stone, that the angels will catch you in midair and bring you back? You'll be saved. God has promised that to you, Jesus. Jesus. And if anyone is a godly person, the Son of God you claim to be, so let's put God to the test. He's given you this promise. So cast yourself down and rely on your Father to miraculously rescue you. In other words, do something foolish in the name of faith. Rely on a miraculous intervention of God to prove His faithfulness to His promise. That's what Satan sometimes likes to do to us is to take Scripture and somehow confuse us into doing something to test God whether or not He's faithful to His Word or not. The second part of the temptation for Jesus is just to do something to seek after His own self-exaltation to throw himself down and experience this miraculous rescue just for his own personal self-aggrandizement or or rather than submit to his Father's will and be the self-sacrifice on the cross. In other words, Satan is saying, tempt God with your death now and ignore the will of God that you'll sacrifice yourself for sinners on the cross. Well, obviously, there's many ways that Satan can use this type of reasoning. Uh, it would be like with a, with a student that is not diligent in doing his homework and preparing for the test. So before the night before the exam, he just prays, Oh God, help me to have, get an A on the test. In other words, they've neglected, they're they're doing something foolish in, in the name of faith, trusting, hoping that God will give them a good grade, but they've neglected that. Or the person who prays, God, make me holy, but they're not pursuing the means of grace to that end. In other words, they're doing something foolish in the name of faith and satan seems now to be sowing these seeds of a, of a false presumption that jesus could count on god's per- protection regardless of the foolishness of his actions of throwing himself down because God's word promises that. So so Satan is interpreting this psalm as if it's an absolute promise to all godly people at all times so that no matter what you do God will watch over and protect you. Well obviously we see that as being foolish. And Jesus correctly saw through the twisting and the distortion of Satan That Psalm 91 is not to be interpreted that way. That the providence of God certainly governs how it is to be applied. It's not an absolute promise of universal protection. Yes, we can rejoice that God can and does protect His people, but it's always according to His will. And I think we should keep that in mind. So summarizing again Psalm 91, this is a marvelous psalm. And I don't want to in any way undermine or discount the encouragement that we get from it. Our faith can be stimulated to trust in God in times of hardship, knowing that He can miraculously intervene, even if He chooses not to. But even that is a comforting thought for God's people. And none of us are bulletproof or bombproof. And in the sovereign will of God, neither was Jesus Christ. For in His early 30s, Christ was flogged by the Romans. He was nailed to the cross with those nails piercing His hands and His feet. He was cruelly crucified for our sins. He was pierced by the sword. And he died young. Which would seem to be a contradiction of the promises of Psalm 91. But see, in the good providence of God, the Lord brought about the greatest good of all human history and the greatest evil act of all human history. So that even though Psalm 91's promises are real, they're precious, they're comfort. Yet in God's providence, he may choose to send suffering and to send trials. And that can work its own good in our life as well, according to God's providence. So I think when we're talking about the coronavirus, and we're looking at all of the things that are going on in this particular day and age, on the one hand, we can be encouraged that we worship a God who can protect us. But that kind of brings me to my second point that I'd like for us to consider this morning. And for that, I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 21. Proverbs chapter 21. Here we read uh, at the end of Proverbs chapter 21, verse 30 and 31, these words. There is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. So Psalm 91 encourages us that we worship a God who can absolutely protect us. He can deliver us. He can rescue us. Uh, we can experience that victory of faith that many of God's people do. But there's no guarantee of that. And what we're learning now in this second passage in Proverbs 21 is that there is no wisdom or human understanding or human counsel that in any way can thwart the plan of God. That's verse 30. Verse 31, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, should be prepared for the day of battle, must be prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. So there's two things that come out of this passage that uh, make me think that there is some wisdom here in terms of our own battle with the coronavirus. And the first is, obviously in verse 31, Don't neglect preparing the horse for battle. That's what we see very clearly. If you're going to war, you better go prepared. And in this particular case, the horse is prepared for the day of battle. So when the ancient armies were going out to engage in some uh, enemy army, they were to train their horses. Now they didn't have a cavalry back then probably, but they definitely had chariots, we know. They had to train their horses to the bridle and the harness to pull the chariots. They had to train their horses to respond to the driver's touch. To charge into close quarters with other horses and and other chariots and other warriors with swords and spears. They needed to train their horses well. If they wanted victory, they needed to train them well. Now when going to battle... With the coronavirus, we need to prepare the horse for battle. And obviously this has been in the forefront of all the news broadcasts and all the opinions everywhere, that we need to do what we need to do to try to overcome this scourge. We need to do all the things that we possibly can to result in victory. We need to ramp up the medical. We need to take precautions, that are recommended. We need to be diligent to do all the preparations to win the battle. So that is stated clearly in verse 31. The horse is prepared for the day of battle. We cannot neglect that. That's important. But here's a second point in verse 31. The victory ultimately doesn't depend upon the preparations it depends upon almighty god don't put your trust in your preparations for the battle don't put your trust in those because victory belongs to the lord the victory does not belong to the horses the victory belongs to the lord and as and as Believers in Jesus Christ. People who love Scripture and who look to the Lord. We we know that inherently within our hearts. That we should not, we should never put our trust in man's wisdom, man's understanding, or in man's counsel. Do the preparations, but know that ultimately they will not succeed apart from the grace of God. The Scriptures again are Very clear and reminding this of that. Notice what we read. uh, Let's see here. Let me go back one. There we go. Psalm 33, verse 17. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Some boast in chariots and some in horses. But we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. And this is what we need to remember. Yeah, we're doing everything we can to prepare the horrors for the day of battle. But we don't put our trust in those things. Don't put your trust in face masks. Don't put your trust in social distancing or in medicines. Yes, do all of those things. They're a part of the means. It's part of the preparation. But ultimately, they will not succeed apart from the grace of God. They will only succeed by the good pleasure of God. Therefore it is paramount that we pray for success in these areas, that we pray for the success of the medicines and the and the supplies needed, that we pray for the success for all those who, who need the face mask or whatever it may be, but know that unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. And we'll all be a house of cards if the Lord does not grant the victory. So it's God's will that will prevail over all the wisdom and understanding and counsel of men attempting to overcome the coronavirus. It is ultimately God who will determine that. And we believe that. So yes, prepare the horse for the day of battle. But know that victory belongs to the Lord. So pray, O God, bless these measures so that this scourge might be lifted from us. How many times have man put their confidence in other men's wisdom to their own folly and failure? The Scriptures are full of examples of this. Now, Absalom revolted against his father David and sought the counsel of Ahithophel. Now remember Ahithophel, he was such a wise man. That the Scriptures say that when you went to Ahithophel for counsel, it's like you're inquiring of the Word of God. So wise was his counsel. It'd be like a walking, talking Urim uh, and Thummim. Where they would, they would be able to discern the will of God. And Absalom went to Ahithophel to get wisdom on how to kill his father and secure the kingdom for himself. So we read in 2 Samuel chapter 17 that the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. You see, the wisdom of man did not prevail against the will of God. Pharaoh thought he had a slam dunk plan to keep Israel enslaved. And yet that counsel from his from his counselors was smashed by the plagues of God. Balak desired to curse Israel, but his curses through through Balaam were overruled by God to actually pronounce a blessing upon Israel. And King Ahab's plan to avoid death, boy, this was sneaky. It was disguising himself in battle. And yet that was thwarted by that Random arrow shot into the air that found the weak spot in His armor. How many times did the scribes and Pharisees plot and scheme to entrap the Lord, but they all failed because His hour had not yet come. So what we need to be reminded is yes, prepare the horse for the day of battle. Just don't put your trust in horses. Don't put your trust in medicine. Don't ultimately put your trust in all the advice they're telling us to do. Wash your hands. Do all of that. Wash your hands. Do it all. But don't trust ultimately in it because God is sovereign. God is on His throne. And ultimately, He is the one who determines who gets the victory. So we need to humble ourselves and look to God more than we look to the wisdom of man. So we need to pray for God's mercy to end this virus, not only in our nation, but around the world uh, as well. The third and final point that I wanted to bring to your attention this morning is uh, just how do we respond to the financial devastation, the, the economic shipwreck that in many ways is taking place because of the coronavirus. Sadly, as we read the the news and get information, people are losing their jobs. Businesses are shutting down. Some of those will go bankrupt and will never uh, come back into business again. There's an economic hemorrhaging that's taking place and people are without income and unable to pay their bills or to buy food and The stock markets have plummeted and people's retirements and their 401Ks and their IRAs and their investments have been severely downgraded. And this is not a good day to be a lover of money. And so we need to recalibrate our thinking if you have lost financially, if you have suffered economically, that we need to readjust our thinking and bring it back in line with Scripture to find hope and peace and encouragement, though the devastation will be terrible and severe for many because of what's taking place within our, within our nation. I remind you of a few verses out of Proverbs that we're not to put our trust in riches. If we do, we will fail. That a rich man's wealth is a strong city. It's like a high wall in his own imagination. Not in reality, just in his imagination. That we're not to weary ourselves to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. So we see that in many ways the Scriptures just encourages us to have the proper attitude towards riches. But you say, well, wait a second. I have, Particularly for those of us who are older in life, I mean, I have worked hard. I've been diligent. I've been frugal to try to save up this nest egg for retirement so I don't have to burden my family. And, and now it's been devastated and you know, we wrestle we 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 feel the burden we feel the discouragement and oftentimes many people become hopeless i mean back in the 1929 stock market crash there were business people throwing themselves out of windows committing suicide but yet the scriptures tell us look put your hope in god put your hope in god uh, there are a number of verses that i think encourage us to do that Uh, One of those, for example, is Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. I was reading that uh, this verse earlier this week and was just blessed by it because it just told me and reminded me that everything belongs to God. The earth in its entirety belongs to God and everybody and everything in it all the gold is his. All the silver is his, says another psalm. All the cattle are his. Everything is his. He belongs. He owns it all. So I think when, if, if we are wrestling with our financial setbacks, what I'd like to ask you to do, even at this moment, is just in your mind and heart, just take everything you have, every item of clothing, every possession that you have, Every nickel that you own. And I want you just to give it to God. Because it all belongs to Him. Just separate yourself from it for a moment. Just give everything that you have. Everything that you are. And just give it all to God. Because it belongs to Him anyway. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Just release it to Him. Because all we are at best are stewards of God's blessings. We're just simply stewards of it. It doesn't belong to us. So just give it to God and say, God, You can do with it whatever You want. And like the attitude of godly Job when he was bankrupt completely, within one day's period. And not only that, lost all ten of His children. All happening in one day. He went from the richest man to the poorest man. He had nothing. And yet, how did He respond? Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, that's the attitude we need to have. The Lord gave me all of that. And the Lord's taking it away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. Why is He blessed? Because he, it belongs to Him anyway. He owns it anyway. And of course, He can also restore it as He did with Job twofold if He so chooses to do that. So there's hope in the Lord. We're just stewards of His great and abundant blessings. I think I have another, yes. This is another verse that uh, I read this week with great encouragement where the author of Hebrews says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. You know, the love of money is the root of all evils. It brings all kinds of pangs into our life. If we set money up as an idol or our... Uh, retirements or our possessions or investments up as idle. Don't, don't do that. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. What a precious promise. In our hope, our joy should be in our God. Not in what God has given to us. It should be not in our gifts, but in the giver of the gifts. Our ultimate joy and hope and contentment in life is in Him who can never be taken away from us. These are great encouragements. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? He can't do anything apart from God's will. The coronavirus can't do anything apart from God's will. The financial markets can't do anything to hurt me apart from God's will. And our God is in control. And we can trust Him. We can lean on Him. We can find our peace in Him. I think I have one final verse. And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19 So where are our riches? Our riches that can never be taken away. Our inheritance that cannot be defiled. It cannot be tarnished. It cannot be stolen. It cannot in any way dissolve or be, be, be lost in the market. Our riches are in glory with Christ Jesus. And God has promised that He'll supply and meet all of our needs until that day that He ordains for us to go home To be with Him in glory. We have a great hope. We worship a God in Psalm 91 who can protect us and deliver us. A God who loves us. And if He allows any of those arrows to penetrate us, it's because He has a good, a wise, and a sovereign will and has promised to bring good out of it. And we can trust Him in the midst of that. We have learned also that in this Day with all the preparations and precautions that need to be taken. We should, we should listen to those. We should, we should prepare the horse for the day of battle, but never put our ultimate confidence in the horse. We put our confidence in the victory comes from the Lord. And finally, as many, certainly I can throw my name in that lot have, uh, uh, been hit with with these uh, financial aspects, we can still trust in the Lord. We can find our joy in the Lord. We can give it all to Him and trust Him. It's in His hands. He can do with it whatever He wishes. That our faith, our confidence is in Him. And that He will supply all of our needs from His infinite, vast amount of riches and glory in heaven. And He is with us and He'll never leave us. He will, he'll be with us to the very end. And I think all of that should be comforting. It should be encouraging. It should uh, help us to retune our thoughts and minds to the Scriptures uh, to know that uh, we worship a wonderful God and uh, our faith and confidence is in Him. And so don't succumb to fear. Trust in the Lord. I think He's going to get us all through it. And uh, His plan is perfect and wise. And we continue to look to Him. So let's uh, close our time uh, with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do want to bow humbly before You and before Your Word this morning. And we want to thank You, Father, for the great encouragement of Psalm 91 to know, dear Lord, that You are a powerful, omnipotent God That You can intervene miraculously. You can save us. You can help us. You can deliver us. You can protect us. But Lord, Your will is sovereign. And Your will is infinitely wise. And we just need to trust You in all those circumstances of life. We do pray again, dear Lord, for Your mercy to bring an end to this coronavirus. We pray, dear Lord, that You would extend healing mercies to all who have been afflicted, to all who are suffering. That, dear Lord, that You would reach out and minister financially and physically and sustain all of those who are suffering financially as well. Dear Father, we pray that You would intervene and that You would bring an end to this in a very speedy way. But Lord, we pray for Your people that You would embolden our faith to trust in You, to know that the victory is in You, that we would find our hope and joy and contentment in You, and that we would use this as an opportunity, dear Lord, to proclaim Jesus Christ for those who are without hope, to those who are full of fear, to those who are discouraged and full of anxiety. May we turn them to the cross of Christ That they might find the only answer to their ultimate problem. The problem that has brought this great disease into our world. And that is the sinfulness of mankind. So give us boldness and give us joy. In proclaiming Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. So Father we thank you for this time of worship this morning. We pray that Your Word will continue to bear fruit in our lives to encourage us in this day of great fear and disappointment. May our eyes be upon You and You alone. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen.